today we begin with the third installment in our four-part series on emerging immunotherapeutic agents for the treatment of bladder cancer. I will now turn you over to Dr. Robert Zvatek, Associate Professor of Urology at UT Health San Antonio. Hello everyone. Welcome to the AUA Bladder Cancers Educational Series webinar number three, New Muscle Invasive Bladder Cancer Guidelines. We strive to offer educational courses we greatly appreciate your evaluations and general feedback so we are able to continuously improve our programs. Tonight we have Dr. Todd Morgan joining us. He is a urologic surgeon specializing in the treatment of urologic malignancies. Um, originally from Seattle, Washington, he completed his undergraduate and medical school training at Harvard. He uh, returned to the Northwest in 2003 for urology residency, was trained as a urologic fellow at Vanderbilt. He's currently at the University of Michigan. Uh, Dr. Morgan is a physician, uh, a, a surgeon scientist who specializes in the treatment of GU malignancies and his laboratory-based uh, research is on uh, developing precision-based medicine for therapeutic strategies in renal cell carcinoma, including identification of genomic signatures to help with risk stratification. I'm delighted to have Todd joining us tonight. The AUA would like to thank the following companies for providing educational grants in support of this webinar. It includes AstraZeneca, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Genentech, and Merck. So at this point, I'd like to turn the um, slides over to Dr. Morgan. All right. So um, I see where we start. Okay, so, we're, so to flip over to the main presentation here, um, you know, before we get started, I think it's important to note that, the, that this was a multi, multidisciplinary guideline. So this comes from the AUA, ASCO, ASTRO, and the SUO. And this is, it's really unprecedented, this between the muscle invasive guidelines and the, the um, non-muscle invasive guidelines. These, uh, there really aren't other AUA guidelines that come from this type of a multidisciplinary perspective. And, and this was led by Jeff Holzberlein, led by Sam Chang. Also, there was the patient advocate, Diane Qualley, who was involved. Um, and so, you know, I'll show all the panelists later, but it was, it was a true effort um, with people from a, a whole variety of different perspectives. In terms of the overall goal for this, I mean, the, the, you know, you can read all the text here, but really it's to review uh, the, multi, the, the Muslim of guidelines. I mean, we'll try to illustrate some of the key guidelines and, and um, important steps through clinical scenarios. The learning objectives are list, listed here. Really, it's to analyze the, to analyze the latest evidence. Um, from, you know, coming from the guidelines and improve our management of patients using uh, these guidelines and, and taking them hopefully into the clinic from here. This is the outline for the webinar where we start with the, um, the, the purpose uh, of the, the guidelines as a whole, go through the guideline methodology, talk about some of the background, uh, support the guideline, and then really spend most of the time going through the guideline statements. Rob and I will discuss uh, questions that come up around some of the guidelines and again, hopefully, you guys will ask questions as well that we can address. We'll end by going through some of the future research and also treatment algorithms. This is the stated purpose of the guideline itself. Uh, it's important to highlight that muscle-based bladder cancer, even though it's the minority of patients with bladder cancer, these are the patients at the greatest risk of dying from the disease, the greatest risk of su suffering and impairments in their quality of life. And so the guideline provides a risk-stratified clinical framework for the management of muscle-based bladder cancer. This methodology that's shown here is really the same methodology that's shown in all of the AUA guidelines. And so the, um, the strength of evidence is rated on a scale of A to B to C, and A really speaks to well-conducted randomized control trials, um, really types of trials that are more common in, say, medicine and cardiology, um, uh, and requiring large numbers of patients and large bodies of evidence. B is... Um, can be randomized control trials. Often it's observational studies with some weaknesses, and then level, level of evidence C comes typically from observational studies with less, weak, with, um, less strength of evidence. And then there's also the degrees of recommendation. And, and so these are, this is kind of a matrix showing the degrees of recommendation from the, coming from the panelists, what's agreed on um, during the panel discussions, kind of cross-tabulated with these levels of evidence, A, B, or C, so you can 
you, know, you can kind of pick a box, for example, and look at, um, you know, you can have a moderate recommendation with a level of evidence B, so that's saying that the benefits are, are perceived to be greater than the risks or vice versa, but the net benefit or net harm is moderate. And then it applies to most patients in most circumstances, but importantly, better evidence could change confidence. And that's really what the strength of evidence B is saying. It's how much confidence do we have that the evidence could change over time. There are also other, um, other guideline statements that will come up. There are clinical principles. Uh, these are things that are kind of widely agreed upon but may not have great body of evidence in the literature. And then there's also expert opinions. And these are, um, these are really kind of statements that come from consensus of the panel based on training and experience. But there's, again, limited published evidence, if any. And so here we'll shift over to um, post-test question. And so uh, this is a question you've already seen again in the pre-test. And here the question is, in expert opinion, is a guideline that re relies on A, randomized control trials, meta-analyses, retrospective reviews, or clinical experience? Okay, so here it comes up, and so, so kind of what I you know, was just showing in the last slide is that the key is an expert opinion is something that relies mostly on clinical experience, but for which there really isn't evidence. And so, again, things where we don't have controlled trials, where we don't have meta-analyses, um, but it's coming from the experience and knowledge and judgment of, the, of mostly of the uh, panelists um, that participated in this. In terms of epidemiology of bladder cancer, these are things I'm sure you're all familiar with. It affects about 80,000 uh, patients per year uh, in the U.S., about 17,000 deaths predicted for 2017. And muscle-invasive bladder can cancer represents about a quarter of newly diagnosed patients um, with bladder cancer. It's also important to note that bladder cancer rates are higher in Caucasians than patients with other ethnicities, but um, disease-specific survival is worse overall for African-Americans. And so here's an illustrative case that I think we can use as we go through the guideline, and this will kind of keep coming up as we, um, as we hit on some of the important topics. And so this is a gentleman who's 73, has a history of gross hematuria, underwent cystoscopy at an outside hospital, and had muscle-invasive sessile bladder cancer. Past medical history is shown along with the past surgical history, medication, he has no allergies, um, he smokes one pack per day of tobacco. These are his vitals, all fine. Um, abdomen, the exam is unremarkable. Geo exam is unremarkable. And only lab of, no, of real note here is the creatinine of 1.1 and a GFR of 55. So the question here is what are, what are the next steps? And so, and so we'll take a look at the guidelines to help answer that. Um, but what, what those are going to support is, is, using, um, is doing a cysto under anesthesia, per, performing an exam under anesthesia. And the, and the panel, re, panel really felt strongly about doing an exam under anesthesia uh, as, as part of the evaluation for patients with muscle-invasive bladder cancer, and then also doing imaging here, CT chest, abdomen, and pelvis. Hey, Todd, in, in a gentleman like this with coronary artery disease, um, I think you said two stents he's had, do you routinely get uh, a cardiac clearance for a TURBT or, or not necessarily? Yeah, not necessarily for a TURBT. We'll get, we'll have some kind of pre-op evaluation, absolutely. Uh, you know, a primary care provider would typically be sufficient for TRBT unless I was really concerned. You know, the, the question I think you have to ask is this, it, would, um, you know, would you want a patient undergo some kind of revascularization procedure before that procedure that you're going to perform? I think that's an important question to ask. Mm -hmm. And for a, a minor procedure like a TRBT, if, if you feel that they've been medically optimized, their primary care provider is seeing them and helping with that, um, and I think they can proceed without an official um, cardiology evaluation. On the other hand, you know, uh, totally different ballgame for a patient undergoing cystectomy. Yeah, I agree. agree with yeah. that? I agree. And the other thing I wanted to ask, uh, get your thoughts on, is anticoagulation. Um, I, I find, because the way it works here is patients come from, you know, far distances to see me in clinic, and I'll usually do a TRBT the following day. So I, it's just a matter of timing and, 
with bladder cancer, I tell the residents that, you know, we really don't want to push off things. So I try to get the TRBT done as soon as possible. So I agree. What, what do you do about aspirin? Um, is that is it imperative that they stop aspirin before a TRBT? No, we'll we'll keep them on aspirin. I, you know, prefer a baby aspirin. We'll yeah. um, we'll do a, you know more more modest TRBT on full dose of aspirin. I think for an extensive TRBT, ideally just 81 of aspirin. Um, but I think I you know I really think aspirin certainly a baby aspirin is fine for a TRBT. And yeah, maybe maybe better for for some of these patients to just stay on them. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think that, I mean, the worst in the world is to have a big cardiac hap- you know, complication after a relatively minor procedure like a TRBT. So, you know, so let's start looking at the guidelines. The, the first guideline here is pretty self-explanatory. The most important thing, again, to mention is that the panelists really felt that an exam under anesthesia is key, and, and I, I think it can be really helpful, especially as you think about how you're going to manage a patient, whether they're a candidate for a cystectomy. Having that exam under, under anesthesia gives you a ton of information. Um, for gui- guideline number two, this is about completing the staging evaluation. And the key here is getting labs, of course, but also getting CT of the abdomen and pelvis with IV contrast, as long as the patient can get IV contrast, and getting imaging of the chest. In general, um, the, you know, the panel felt that a chest X-ray could be acceptable, except for smokers who should undergo a CT chest. And in my practice, generally, we get a CT chest. So, by the way, I'll mention those are both clinical principles. So, here's post-test question number two. Initial screening for a patient with muscle invasive bladder cancer includes CT scan of the abdomen, abdomen and pelvis only, CT scan of the abdomen and pelvis, chest imaging and EUA, CT head, chest, abdomen and pelvis, or CT PET. Super. So, um, answer is B, CT scan of the abdomen pelvis, chest imaging at UA, like we just talked about. Um, you know, the panel really just did not feel there was sufficient evidence to support a CT PET in this situation, and, and the key here is, you know, looking at the chest at some level and getting a scan of the abdomen and pelvis. Flip back over here in a second, I think. So, hey, Todd, is, is there any... Um, situation where you would get a PET scan right off the bat. Um, I can't, in my personal practice, I can't think of that. I, I have used it in patients where I'm trying to decide whether or not to take them to surgery for a cystectomy. Like, let's say they have maybe some evidence of metastatic disease, and I, I'm, I'm trying to decide whether a cystectomy right. is the right thing to do. But have you ever got it uh, right off the, the bat? I can't think of an instance. Yeah. I think, I mean, you know, Post-cystectomy, I can think of times we've used it, um, and just like you said, times where you're really trying to sort out, you know, whether uh, whether something that might change your decision about cystectomy really is a metastasis. Um, and so certainly there, I mean, CT PET can be helpful in bladder cancer. Just that, you know, it's not part of routine evaluation. So here, here's the pathology for this patient, back to the case. Um, he had two, T2 urothelial cancer, had 10% nested, nested component, so variant histology. And the question is about next steps. So here the panel really felt that when variant histology is present or suspected, that an experienced GU pathologist should review the pathology. Um, that doesn't necessarily have to be the case for all patients with urothelial cancer that certainly can be helpful. Uh, there are a lot of changes that can occur and re-review of these specimens with um, with the experienced geopathologist, but certainly for a patient with variant histology, it's really important. So, can you, uh, Todd? So, tell me how that might alter your management. Uh, and, and give me an example of where, you know, the variant histology might d- determine what you might do differently. Well, I think, you know, especially when we talk about neoadjunct chemotherapy, and we'll talk some more about that, certain histologies really um, may not respond well or may or, or should get different types of chemotherapy. So an example would be substantial sarcomatoid differentiation. Um, th- those, you know, sarcomatoid cancers don't respond well to neoadjunct chemo, and so if there was a large amount of sarcomatoid cancer present, that's a patient who probably needs to go 
the cystectomy. If there's a lot of small cell um, cancer present, and if, then you then you're going to look at different chemo regimens. And so I think that becomes really important. And also patients with non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, uh, if they have urine histology, those behave more aggressively, and those patients may need to go um, go straight to cystectomy as opposed to being managed more conservatively. Yeah. So I think this is an interesting kind of recommendation because, you know, it's almost it's almost as if you really need uh, a GU pathologist when you have a normal or let, let's say a, a pathology report that says there is no variant histology um, and, and it's inaccurate. So it's almost as if, you know, the, where it's really helpful is when you have traditional urothelial cell that actually has a variant that was missed. Um, so, it, it, right. you know, that's why, I mean, it's almost as if the recommendation should be that we need a GU pathologist to review all cases. Um, reviewing in the situation where you have variant histology, I think, is actually less helpful than the, the opposite. So what are your thoughts that's on that? That's a great point. It's a great point. I mean, that's hard to argue with. The problem is just not everybody has easy access to an experienced GU Exactly, yeah. And that's, that's and so, I understand that. That's what it, um, it's, you know, I wanna, it's not being practical. Yeah. Listen, before we move on, let's, there's a patient, uh, I mean a patient, there's a question here from the, from the participants. Um, if the patient is a candidate for partial cystectomy, do you get an MRI of the pelvis? And let's, and maybe we should just go into the, you know, if you have a candidate for a partial cystectomy, what, Todd, are, is your typical workup strategy in that situation? Sure. So there is a guideline pertaining to partial cystectomy, so we'll talk a little bit more about that. I think the important thing is that it is the rare, rare, rare patient who um, who's a good candidate for partial cystectomy, and it usually has to do with their comorbidities and the amount of tumor present and the location of the tumor. And speaking to the urothelial, urothelial histology, you know, adenocarcinoma can be a, a different ballgame. Um, located, located at the dome, but um, for you know for these cases where we're considering partial cystectomy, they you know they get an EUA, TRBT, random bladder biopsies, um, and they get standard imaging for muscle invasive bladder cancer, meaning chest imaging along with a CT abdomen pelvis. I don't specifically get an MRI. I don't I don't know um, that that would help help me with the decision process. Um, but the key is that they just have a small, isolated tumor, hopefully well-positioned towards the dome. So we'll keep going um, to the, you know, back to this case and keep walking through this patient's management. And so, again, geopathologist looks at, uh, looks at the pathology and agrees nested variant, no LVI. And so we have a 73-year-old male with clinical T2 urothelial cancer with nested variant and GFR 55, and so what are the next steps? And so statement four from the guideline, again, another clinical principle just harps on the importance of a multidisciplinary approach and having a multidisciplinary discussion, bringing up surgery and chemotherapy and radiation as possibilities. You know, it's important to state that patients don't necessarily, don't necessarily have to see a radiation oncologist, although it's important to bring that up, bring up that as an option. And not all patients necessarily have to see a medical oncologist, although certainly in our practice that's the vast, vast, vast majority of patients do. Um, but at minimum here at the bottom, a multidisciplinary approach should include discussing the risks and benefits of all accepted forms of therapy that, and, and of course taking into account patient preferences. In terms of guideline number five, it's important to bring up quality of life. We know all the data on the risks of cystectomy, the complications and readmissions associated with cystectomy, urinary complications associated with diversion, metabolic issues, nutrition issues associated with diversion, and also the toxicities of radiation, the geotoxicity, GI toxicity. And so all these things need to be discussed with the patient beforehand um, and, um, and really going into the quality of life, quality of life issues. Um, I should note here that it's you know, we won't, we should have that the first five statements are all clinical principles. Um, we don't get to a uh, a strong recommendation until we get to the sixth guideline, and this is something we're all familiar with. Within within this multidisciplinary context, clinicians should offer cisplatin-based 
immunoadjuvant chemotherapy to eligible radical cystectomy patients prior to cystectomy. And so this really is standard of care. It should be discussed with basically all, all eligible, all potential patients who are undergoing cystectomy. And this is on the basis of two large phase three randomized trials. They showed a significant overall survival benefit, significant um, cancer-specific survival benefit, a significant metastasis-free survival benefit associated with neoadjuvant chemotherapy prior to cystectomy. Yeah, and I, can you go back one slide here? Let's go, mm -hmm. go back. So, I, and, and we've talked about this before, uh, Todd. I had some issues with the grade B recommendation here, you know, and I, I kind of feel that, you know, we have very few randomized controlled trials in urology. We have even less randomized controlled trials in bladder cancer. And now we have very strong evidence uh, of, of neoadjuvant chemotherapy um, providing a benefit for these patients. And the highest grade, you know, recommendation here given is a grade B. Um, so I just, you know, I think that this is one opportunity that may have been missed. And um, I think, you, you know, you, you were present there, Todd. What, what was your take on the grading here? And why can't we have given this a grade A? Yeah. Really, really I'm, send the message home it to be, yeah. So. Well, I can tell you that, that the panelists wanted this to be a grade A. And um, and so there's a tension, of course, between what, um, in some ways, what what bunch of urologists, radiation oncologists, medical oncologists think should be standard of care and knows that standard of care and goes in the guidelines. More or less, it's really the state that it's standard of care, and um, and the informatics specialists who really help. I mean, we have, there are two informatics experts. Uh, with tremendous amount of expertise, tremendous amount of expertise who help, you know, decide what the grade levels are going to be. And their perspective relates to the literature in diabetes and heart disease, uh, where huge trials over long periods of times with tremendous amount of power exist. And so if you look at the chemotherapy, the neoadjuvant chemotherapy trials around cystectomy, you know, there are some conflicting pieces of data. There are studies that have been negative. The, the largest, the two largest phase three studies are clearly positive, but there are some studies with mixed results. Um, and so at the end of the day, that, that kind of dictated this is a grade B. You know, I guess it, it's a good point that we're, we're in our little silos that we just don't have the, you know, we're, we're biased because we, we, we know the, the, the literature in urology and, and GU. We don't see those bigger kind of things and, and so from what you know our consideration is this is as good as it gets but but in fact may, maybe that's that's just a biased um, perspective um, I want to get yeah, to Adam's uh, con oh yeah go ahead, go ahead. so um, we've got Adam McWally joining us and he's a uh, a, a GU a, you know, a surgeon scientist and uh, with expertise in, in GU and so, Adam, I'm getting to your comment here. It says that, you know, it's regarding the use of MVAC in the community. Um, one of the issues is that, you know, it's hard to give MVAC, or I guess it's harder to give MVAC than it is to give gemcitabine. The data for neoadjuvant chemotherapy is based on MVAC, but what actually happens in the community is that people are given uh, gemcitabine cisplatin. So, Todd, what are your thoughts about gemcitabine versus or GC, gemcitabine cisplatin versus MVAC, and how was that considered in the uh, context of the guidelines? Yeah, it really was. And Adam, thanks for joining us and for bringing up some, you know, important issues here. Just like you and Rob basically mentioned, that the, the data on GC versus MVAC is in the setting of metastasis. Frankly, the panel didn't get into that. The, key, the, the recommendation is that these patients need new adjunct chemotherapy. And trying to get into the nuance of gem, uh, gem cis versus MVAC versus dostense MVAC, um, was something that the panel didn't want to really spell out. It's discussed a little bit in the guidelines, but at a limited level. And so, um, I want to get back to this variant histology and pathology interpretation. So one disadvantage of this in, put, in terms of putting it in the guidelines is a community urologist, uh, you know, may be held hostage uh, to kind of making sure they get a, a GU pathologist to interpret. Um, so 
I have uh, we have Brian Marks here, who's who's practiced in a large community hospital, and um, I, it says that he he sends them out for interpretation. So Brian, if you're there, I want to just how, what are what is your experience with you know how long it takes to get these back, and does that do you find that it delays you know your the care for the patient, and what's your kind of feelings about that? Um, Todd, do you guys ever have to send out? For, for third opinions, or you use somebody internally? Yeah, I mean, we've got a tremendous group here, but absolutely, well, you know, I think just like as urologists, we'll, you know, might call you for help with a case or advice or input. I think our, our geopathologists do the same. And so if they, um, if they feel like they need some outside input, they'll, um, they'll consult with some of their expert pathologists, depending on the which disease it is uh, and other major centers. It's a, uh, you know, the key is to get it, get it right for the patient, and I'm, I think nobody has any compunction about that. All right, we'll keep moving here. Let's go to the next slide. Right. So um, back to neoadjuvant chemo, important considerations. These are brought up in the guidelines so that there are no validated predictive factors. So at least at this point, we still – Although many are working on this, we don't have predictive biomarkers that can help us decide which patients should get neoadjuvant chemotherapy. The best regimen and duration is still undefined. And then the decision in general should be based for neoadjuvant chemo should be based on comorbidities and performance status, cardiac, risk of neuropathy, hearing loss, and renal dysfunction. So back to this patient, he's seen by an experienced Jew medical oncologist. He's deemed not a good candidate for cisplatin-based chemotherapy, and the question is, would you recommend another chemotherapy regimen? So the answer is no, and that comes from um, this next guideline stating that clinicians should not prescribe carboplatin-based neoadjuvant chemotherapy for clinically respectable stage T2 to T4 bladder cancer. And so patients ineligible for cisplatin-based neoadjuvant chemo should proceed to definitive cystectomy or, or definitive uh, radiation, definitive local regional therapy, and that's an expert opinion. And then number eight is that Radical cystectomy should be performed as quickly as possible in general within six to eight weeks of completion of chemotherapy, although longer window is discussed in the guideline. In terms of neoadjuvant chemotherapy, the data is certainly not nearly as robust. Um, I'm sorry, in terms of adjuvant chemotherapy, the data is not as robust as for neoadjuvant chemotherapy, um, but, but in general, patients not, who have not received neoadjuvant chemotherapy and have non-organ confined disease should be offered adjuvant cisplatin-based chemotherapy. So here's post-test question number three. In a patient who is fit for surgery but cannot receive cisplatin-based chemotherapy, the next step is carboplatin-based neoadjuvant chemotherapy, neoadjuvant immunotherapy, radical cystectomy, or radiation therapy alone. Yeah, so in a patient who cannot receive cisplatin-based chemotherapy, the point is go directly to radical cystectomy. So let's talk about radical cystectomy. Here, here are some key guidelines on cystectomy. Um, number 10 here is that, you know, kind of bread and butter, radical cystectomy is the standard of care. It gets a strong recommendation, evidence level B. Um, it, you know, it's, it was felt to outperform uh, bladder sparing modalities, uh, prim primarily based on um, one randomized control trial, um, although there are certainly conflicting data re regarding those bladder-preserving therapies. Number 11 here is that it's kind of obvious when performing a cystectomy, those are the structures that should be removed for men and women. But number 12 is really important that sexual pres preservation is possible. And so for, um, for men, um, not just nerve sparing, but also preservation of, uh, you know, doing uh, prostate capsule sparing or even prostate sparing. And for women, preserving uterus, uh, ovaries are all, all things that can be uh, done. So, Rob, did yeah, you have a question here? Yeah, when, well, I wanted to comment on that, um, that I think the pendulum is kind of swinging back away from kind of uh, real, uh, the pelvic exit. And, and my personal practice in women is that, I save the ovaries, I save the anterior vaginal wall if I can. Um, and, and, you know, 
I'm not sure in some cases that that's the right thing to do. I have a patient um, who developed, strangely enough, a, a really rare ovarian tumor. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess if you've, you've done enough of these, you start to realize that, you know, you hate to leave anything down there that could become a problem. But my, my kind of general practice has been that, you know, if the ovaries uh, are, are look normal, um, that you save them. And the anterior vaginal wall, you know, I, I think if there's a good plane that develops there, that you should, you know, there's no reason to take it. But um, I know that, that that's not really agreed upon by everyone. So what, what are your thoughts? Well, do you, do you even in a woman, say, who's over 60, you would still preserve the ovaries? So it's interesting. You have these women that are postmenopausal, and you do an ovarectomy, and they have worsening hot flashes, or they have worsening kind of, uh, uh, you know, deterioration and other kind of unrelating. So there is some postmenopausal amount, uh, non-trivial amount of estrogen that contributes. But uh, mm-hmm. granted, I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, it's the, it's the right thing to do. So I think, it's, I think, I think there it's was a great discussion yeah. point. Yeah. I've, and I've seen, I mean, I, I've, I've talked to a number of OBGYNs about this, and I think there's good data to support what you just said in terms of the hormonal levels that still come from the ovaries. That said, my practice is in a, in a woman um, who's, we'd say, over about 50 to 55, I will generally recommend removing the ovaries, although I'll have a discussion about it. For younger women, uh, we definitely have a discussion. I, I think from an oncological standpoint, I mean, bladder cancer doesn't spread to the ovaries. We, we're removing them for other reasons. Right. I mean, and I think, you know, Adam's point here is going back, you know, you don't want to have to go back afterward. I mean, it's surgically difficult to get back into the pelvis, and I think that that's another uh, good point in terms of why that's recommended. But I think the anterior vaginal wall, I really think that that's, there's not, you know, I mean, unless you have a clear, you know, tumor that's invading, I think in many cases you can get, a good plane developed there and preserve the vagina in most cases. I totally agree with that. Um, so certainly for any women who are sexually active, as long as the tumors, you know, not, not basically clearly invading the vagina, um, we'll look and look for that plane and usually can find it. And it's, we haven't seen issues from that. I certainly haven't. So back to the case, um, the question here is what's the best urinary diversion option? So in terms of some of the urinary diversions, uh, number 13 speaks to the need to discuss conduit, discuss cutaneous diversion, discuss an orthotopic neobladder, and that there are different, you know, different quality of life issues with all of these. I think one important thing to bring up is, uh, is that patients with renal insufficiency, in particular GFR, say below about 45, are generally not, not good candidates for continent urinary diversions. And then number 14 here is another clinical principle and that's the need to verify a negative urethral margin. You know, the, the risk of development of cancer in that retained urethra is hugely variable depending on the study. Um, but the point is when, when doing a neobladder, um, if you're, if you're it, when, you know, when you um, preserve the urethra there, you really need to do an, a, a um, extend a margin at the time of stacking to a frozen section. And that's felt um, very strongly by our panelists. Here in terms of perioperative management, there, there really wasn't a specific recommendation to pursue a, a, a you know, ERAS, an ERAS guideline per se, you know, the enhanced recovery after surgery protocols. But a lot of the ERAS elements are in these guidelines. And so things like um, nutritional counseling, smoking cessation, bowel, bowel, pressure, prep, bowel preparation, all those things really should be considered in potentially elements of the cystectomy pathway. Number 16 is a, another strong recommendation in grade B, and that's the need for a thromboembolic prophylaxis. There wasn't a clear consensus about the timing of that. As, you know, many people, me included, will give, uh, give sub-Q heparin prior to, about within an hour prior to um, the, the incision, prior to surgery, and continue it postoperatively. And, I, you know, not my practice, we continue it for 30 days after cystectomy. Um, but again, the, the, there were variable practice patterns and not a clear recommendation regarding the specific way pharmacologic uh, prophylaxis is used. 
but the point here is that it needs to be used at some level. So here, this, so this patient undergoes a cystectomy with a pseudoneural bladder and undergoes, uh, you know, the ERAS elements are applied. And one other ERAS element is the use of these new opioid antagonists. And that comes from a prospective randomized trial. That data is shown here in the figure. Um, patients receiving bimapam are in blue, placebos um, in, I guess, what is that, some creamish color. Um, and there was a significant decrease in postoperative length of stay for patients who received perioperative or postoperative alvimapam. And number 18 here it speaks to the importance of detailed teaching regarding care of the urinary diversion prior to discharge from the hospital for these patients. And, you know, many of the readmissions are due to patients still trying to learn how to care for their urinary diversion, and so those can largely be uh, impacted by making sure that patients receive detailed teaching. Here's post-test question four. When preparing a patient for radical cystectomy, a strong recommendation, evidence level B exists for which of the following options? Full bowel prep, here we go, oral antibiotic bowel prep only, ampgent, or pre-op alzimapam. Todd, do you do, you do uh, well, I don't want to interrupt this question. Uh, I'm curious as to your approach for uh, bowel preps and NG tube use in cystectomy patients. Yes, we we yeah, so just to answer this question real quick before we go off it, the, the answer is that preoperative administration um, is is the gets the strong recommendation with evidence level B. What's our practice? My practice is uh, is really clears unless there's another clear reason um, not to, which there rarely is. And patients get clears prior to surgery, uh, and and no mechanical bowel, bowel prep whatsoever. Um, what about an uh, you know, in terms of NG tube? We don't use you know if we place a OG tube at the time of cystectomy, mm-hmm. and you know again unless there's some mitigating factor, we we don't use an NG tube postoperatively. The rate of patients we've looked at this rate of patients needing to have an NG tube placed after surgery it's under 10%. Um, so if, you know there are clearly yeah. are some patients that need that do need to have an NG tube placed, and it's you know not a fun thing for them, but uh, but I think the benefit of avoiding it is it really outweighs that risk. What's your practice? Yeah, same as yours. Um, and I think there's some, you know, there's data and not in surgery literature, but I mean, not in cystectomy yeah. literature, but other supporting that, that an NG tube is actually, uh, you know, more harmful than, than good. So. Yep. And I'll say there was some debate on the panel about whether that should be a specific guideline, you know, use of a mechanical bowel prep uh, to make the final cut, but it certainly generated a lot of discussion. There were many who supported that. The, you know, the data on that from the Colton literature is it, it really supports it in general, although it's a little bit mixed. And so it wasn't strong enough. There isn't enough evidence in the cystectomy literature to support that recommendation. In terms of the public lymphadenectomy, we all know this is standard of care. Um, and, and that in this figure shows kind of the rates of spread to d- different lymph nodes. In terms of the regions of the public lymphadenectomy, there's no clear consensus on, you know, how high up. We need to go regions two, three, six, and five, which are the you know, external, internal, iliac, obturator, uh, lymph node areas, are certainly part of the standard dissection, and those at a minimum are the lymph nodes that need to be addressed. Of course, there are randomized trials that are evaluating extended node dissections going basically all the way up to the aorta. Whether the extended dissection outperforms the standard dissection is to be determined, and the panelists didn't really feel that we could make a recommendation going at least beyond setting the minimum beyond the um, the common the bifurcation at the common iliac artery. And so before we go into that, uh, Todd, let, let me just address a couple of questions here. So uh, back to the, the vaginal sparing cystectomy, could you review the importance of bladder tumor location and vaginal sparing cystectomy? And I think this is also related to another question of, you know, does the tumor location influence your decision to do a vaginal sparing cystectomy? And, and Todd and I may differ on this. Uh, again, I, my general approach is it's an intraoperative decision. I try to save the vagina if I can get a, a, a good plane. Uh, and if there's any difficulty 
if it's not if I feel like there's any potential concern for invasion, then I'll then I'll take the cuff. Um, and it's also based on the patient's uh, desire to have sexual intercourse. So if it's if if it's a patient that has no interest in, uh, for sexual intercourse, then I'll, I'll be you know. Uh, more conservative and more aggressive in terms of, of whether or not to save it. But in a young, healthy female, I'll be more aggressive in terms of trying to, to save the vagina. And tumor location can play a role. I mean, if it's a, obviously if it's a dome, interiorly located tumor, I really don't see any reason to, to take the, the vaginal cup in that situation. Um, so, and then... Um, I agree with that. The, yeah, sounds like you're so, a little bit more aggressive in terms of preserving the vagina than I am, but I, but I will generally try to preserve it in any woman who's sexually active in tumor location. The only areas I worry about, it's, you know, it's the trigone, a little bit bladder neck, um, posterior bladder, and anything bulky back there, I, I get concerned about it and then generally recommend removing the anterior vaginal wall. I, mean, I do most of my cystectomies robotic, so, so I, and I feel that, you know, we can sometimes minimize the amount of the vagina that we take just because of the view that we get doing it that way. Yeah, and I think part for me part of it is that I don't like having a, a large opening down there to repair. Um, mm. you, you know, I've had patients with persistent vaginal leakage, um, yep. and it's never a it's, it's never a serious problem, but it's it's a nuisance. And so I, I actually like having the extra vaginal tissue to to repair once I'm done. Um, Adam yeah, asked, you know, great point. Yeah. yeah. So Adam asked, are there any predictors for needing a nasogastric tube? Um, that's a good question. I, and I do think, you know, the thought about an NG tube is, you know, preventing – the original concept behind NG tubes were that you would decrease uh, gastric fluid contents, decrease the risk of aspiration, um, and improve – actually, imp the idea was actually improve return of bowel function. And my, in the sur general surgery literature, it actually doesn't do those three things. In fact, it actually prolongs return of GI function, probably because you're not stimulating the gut. Um, the, the only the only time I'll leave an NG tube in is if I leave somebody intubated, um, and or or if we doing if I'm using a large colon for an Indiana pouch. Uh, the 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 surgeon that I work with likes to leave an NG tube in for that situation, and maybe there's a difference in recovery and for large intestine versus small. That's that's my take, Todd. I think those are great points. I haven't seen any data on predictors for needing an NG tube, but it's a great question. You get to know ahead of time. Okay. All right. Well, why don't you keep going? That we've got. Yeah. Ten minutes left until the end of the hour, so I want to make sure we get to these other topics. So we'll keep moving. Yep. Sounds good. So from a, you know we'll do bladder preservation here. So in terms of bladder preservation, I think it's important to say that the panel found no strong evidence, you know, whether or not in general immediate cystectomy improves survival when compared to initial bladder sparing protocols. Um, that specifically ones that do not, that, that sorry, that do employ salvage cystectomy, and, and the key there is that. Many patients who undergo bladder preservation do need salvage cystectomy, but as long as that's on the table, these bladder sparing approaches can be very effective. And there are also other non-multimodal bladder preser preserving uh, regimens, and in general, those aren't considered effective uh, at all relative to true multimodal therapy. And so here's the guideline number tw uh, 21. In terms of bladder preservation, this is something that can be offered. When it's offered, it, it needs to be multimodal treatment, TRBT, systemic chemotherapy, radiation therapy, um, all on the table, along with ongoing cystoscopy. So something that can be offered. For number 22, um, in patients who are considering bladder-preserving therapy, a maximal debulking TRBT is really critical. And so this gives the patients the greatest likelihood of responding to this treatment, and this figure shows that patients who are complete responders after undergoing multimodal therapy do much better than patients who are incomplete responders who undergo multimodal therapy. For number 23 is patients who are medically fit and consent to radical cystectomy should not undergo partial cystectomy. This is we talked about a little bit earlier in terms of partial cystectomy, so we won't spend too much time on this slide. Um, but basically, there are just a small minority of patients who are potential candidates, and it involves 
having a tumor in the right location and being able to get resection with a two centimeter surgical margin. Primary, oh, go ahead, Rob. Maybe no, I, I think there was a, uh, one of the participants, Gene, asked a 2.5 centimeter solitary muscle invasive bladder tumor. Um, two questions. A, is, is a partial possible? And I think you're talking, you're discussing that now, or you just did. B, do you yeah. give neoadjuvant chemotherapy for, for patients undergoing partial for a, a muscle invasive tumor? Great question. So the answer is yes. If, if that patient decides they want a partial cystectomy, neoadjuvant chemo is the right thing to do, then those patients also need a pelvic lymph node dissection. Um, and so they're treated basically just like you would if you were doing a cystectomy for those patients. Is that patient a candidate for a partial cystectomy? Well, potentially, if, if it's in the right spot, you can get a you know, a large margin. That said, it really is not the standard. And if a patient is healthy and, and able to undergo the radical cystectomy, then the radical cystectomy is the better treatment option. That comes from this guideline. That said, there can be a lot of mitigating factors, including patient comorbidities that could drive you towards cystectomy and also patient preferences. And so it can be discussed. Um, and, and as long as the patient understands the risks, of course, the potential need for additional surgery, uh, the risks of spread, it's on the table. Um, so this guideline speaks to the, you know, the recommendation that radiation therapy alone should not be offered as a curative treatment. There is high rates of pelvic failure, poor local control. This next guideline um, states that for patients with muscle invasive bladder cancer who are getting multimodal therapy, they need kind of these components, maximal TRBT, chemotherapy, and also external beam radiation therapy, as well as a cystoscopic reevaluation. And so the key here is that certain cytotoxic agents um, not not only improve the cell kill from radiation, but they, of course, also treat potential micrometastases elsewhere. And so, you, so you're adding the maximum TRBT to maximize response, the chemotherapy as a radiosensitizer, and to treat systemic disease, and then the radiation, of course, on top of that. Um, you know, true bladder preservation rates are variable. It just depends largely on the different series and the patient selection, um, really, and the the, um, the way the treatments are conducted. But what this figure is showing is that for patients who undergo uh, bladder preserving therapy as their initial plan, many of these patients, in fact, go on to cystectomy. So VSS is, of course, disease-specific survival, and BIDFS is bladder intact disease-free survival. And so that kind of the, the gap there between the two curves shows the number of patients, more or less, who are going on to um, going on to salvage cystectomy. For patients who want to go multimodal bladder-preserving therapy, patients who get chemo radiation, they're much better than patients who get radiation alone, and that's what this forest plot is showing. And just you can just look at the bottom summary here, all patients. Here, um, the forest plot is shows the risk of death amongst patients undergoing. Uh, chemo radiation is lower compared to patients who undergo radiation. And so that's, so that's what this recommendation 26 is speaking to is that radiation sensitizing chemotherapy agents like cisplatin 5-FU or, or mitomycin C should be given for patients who are undergoing chemo radiation. And that's a strong recommendation, evidence level B. 27 here is that patients who undergo bladder preservation need close surveillance. CT scans, cystoscopy, urine cytology. There's no clear recommendation in terms of what the interval is, but basically, you know, we think of these patients mostly like patients who, who have non-muscle invasive bladder cancer who you're monitoring, so they may get a cystoscopy every three months for the first year, four to six months, for a year or two after that, and then eventually on to annual surveillance. For patients who go on and, and um, fail those treatments, go on and recur, those patients should be offered radical cystectomy with bilateral pelvic lymphadenectomy, and that's a strong recommendation. And for patients with those are for patients with muscle invasive disease, for patients with non-muscle invasive disease, they can be treated like kind of de novo, most non-muscle or de novo recurrent non-muscle invasive disease. And so that means that TRBT is on the table, intravesical agents are also on the table. And of course, radical cystectomy is still on the table for those patients. Here is post-test question five for MIBC patients who are medically fit but desire bladder preservation, the recommended option is chemotherapy and XRT, partial cystectomy, maximal TRBT alone, or radiation alone.
What proportion of your patients do you see, Todd, are kind of fall into this category of, let's say, medically fit but desire platter preservation? You'd say 10%, 30%? I mean, I think it's less. It's less. You know, they're, they're really the two populations, patients who want to go bladder preservation. It's, it's um, the patients who are not medically fit and have muscle invasive bladder cancer. Those are the most common patients who go on to chemo radiation. And then this population medically fit, and it's, it's probably in our practice, in my, in my practice, uh, somewhere around 5%. I, I definitely have patients yeah. who elect this, um, but it's just not that common. And so here's the answer here. That the answer is, is for these patients who are medically fit, they should undergo chemotherapy and radiotherapy. Um, maximal TRBT should be done, but it's part of part of that multimodality treatment. So you're back to this patient. He ends up undergoing cystectomy. PT3B is his final pathology. N0, question of what is his prognosis um, and, and potential treatments going forward. And so the question is, does he get adjuvant chemotherapy? And that we can discuss. That goes into the guideline number nine, which I'll show here in a second. And he also needs labs, cytology, urethral wash, and a CT abdomen pelvis for monitoring. So here's, in terms of his prognosis, these are the um, the recurrence rates following cystectomy. It correlates very closely with pathologic tumor stage. And most recurrences occur within the first two to three years after cystectomy. And that's really when we need to focus our you know, very close follow-up to these patients. Adjuvant chemotherapy is a recommended treatment for a patient like this who has not undergone neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And so if he can get adjuvant to spot-based chemo, that should definitely be considered. So sorry. And in terms so, of follow so what if, yeah, please. What if he, can you go back one? So what about mm -hmm. uh, cisplatin ineligible patients? Um, what's the recommendation there? What I, what I typically, I'll try to find a trial for these, for patients that are cisplatin ineligible, but I, I really want to put them on an adjuvant trial, but I wonder what, what the, the panel, you know, what's the consideration for, looks like you have it there. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah, that's it there. So, okay. straight in the red, yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. So, the, but the point here is that the adjuvant chemotherapy are under adjuvant chemo trials are underpowered. If you put them all together, there's some key meta analyses like the ABC meta analysis that suggested a potential benefit. Um, but in patients who are non-cystine eligible, clinical trials, just like you said. And for, so, for us, what well, we have the um, the the Invigor trial, which is an atezolizumab trial. It, for patients with locally advanced bladder cancer, basically non-organ confined bladder cancer. And so that's the trial that we're enrolling to now, and I think there's real potential here for immunotherapeutic agents, specifically for these types of patients, among, patients amongst others. Right. Okay. So in terms of surveillance, it's listed here. Uh, there's no specific recommendation on what the exact intervals need to be, but patients do need close follow-up. Um, over time following cystectomy or following chemo radiation. Lab assessment here, it's, so that was the imaging assessment. This is lab assessment every three to six months. And then um, also for patients with retained urethra, patients need to be monitored in terms of a urethral recurrence. There's, there was not clear consensus regarding the need for urethral washes, although they can be effective. There's reasonable data to support them, and it's and it is mentioned in the guidelines as warranting strong consideration. There's also, there's also a lot of debate over the need for urine cytology to help monitor for upper tract recurrences. And really, the, the, um, the, what the, what's stated here in red is the conclusion of the panel based on a lot of evidence is that urine cytology can be used to monitor for recurrence, but its sensitive, sensitivity is low and the difficulty with interpretation. And so it, it's not necessarily standard of care by any means in that setting. So patient survivorship is also really important. There are a lot of organizations. We refer patients to these, to especially BCAN, an incredible organization that supports patients with bladder cancer. The Urology Care Foundation does an amazing job for patients with bladder cancer. Uh, and we, we know from our experience with our bladder cancer support group that our patients get a lot out of it, and it makes a big difference in terms of their quality of life going forward and their understanding of their, their disease. Um, and then 34 yeah, speaks to – oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, I just there's a there's a beacon um, pamphlet that's available online uh, that it, you can go online and order 
just anybody listening in, it's really helpful. I give it handed out to all of my patients, and it's it's brief, but it has kind of all the key points for muscle invasive disease. So I strongly uh, encourage anyone listening to to check out the Beacon website and uh, check out that pamphlet. Yeah, the content of the website is tremendous, hugely valuable, a great resource for patients. So. This is a time that's a really teachable moment for these patients. That's, that's the, there's a lot of literature around. This is a chance to encourage smoking cessation, encourage a healthy diet, exercise, weight loss, and, and patients really are able to achieve some of those things in a way that they're not in, given other circumstances. And so it's really important for that to be part of the counseling for these patients. And finally, this guideline really just states kind of a carve out for patients with very nostalgia that even though variant histology is brought up intermittently throughout the guidelines, that these different histologies have unique clinical characteristics. And we talked about some of that at the beginning of this webinar. And so any, you know, at any step of the way, different variant histologies could require some diversions from the standard evaluation that we talked about. You know, one example, again, is small cell histology um, that, that really requires different chemotherapeutic agents that can require a discussion around radiation possibly being being at least as good as surgery for many many of these patients um, it requires you know full full imaging including CT of the head and so very nostalgia is just again something we need to be really cognizant about for future research key areas are detection and markers we really really need Predictive biomarkers above all things that can help us understand which, which patients will respond best to which types of treatment. Therapies, uh, therapeutics, especially immunotherapeutics, could really be entering our arsenal in the, in the very, very near future. They're in clinical trials. We know that they have a role in metastatic bladder cancer and they may, uh, may have an important role both in treatment of patients prior to cystectomy and after cystectomy. And then for surveillance, can there's, you know, continued progress in terms of imaging and also laboratory studies uh, that can help us tweak how we surveil these patients and ideally minimize the need for intensive surveillance where, where appropriate and do the best surveillance that we can at each interval um, using hopefully new, new tests, and, and there are many of these that are underway. So this last so, slide, uh, we don't oh, yeah. need to, Oh, go ahead, Rob. Yeah, no, so I think that that was a great, a really great um discussion of all the points, and I appreciate you hitting all the points. Um, so, you know, keeping in line with the topic of emerging immunotherapeutics, um, I realize that none of the immune therapy that's currently uh, kind of changing the world for metastatic disease is currently affecting uh, muscle invasive disease without metastasis, but um, just a few minutes to speculate on where along this kind of uh, early disease setting you where where immunotherapy would most likely impact these patients, and what are your thoughts about that aspect of things? Yeah, I think you know, I think right now, if you look at where the clinical trials are, there are key clinical trials in the adjuvant setting. I, I think, like many things, it's going to start out with patients who are not eligible for what is quote unquote standard of care. Patients who are not eligible just, for sorry, just to, the so the adjuvant setting. Just to clarify for the audience, so the, the, this is the immediate post-operative setting. You've, you've done the cystectomy. You're talking about giving the immune therapy immediately after, right? Yep. So, thanks. So, so I think for patients who are at very high risk of recurrence, there's a huge opportunity for, for these immunotherapeutic agents, PDL1 inhibitors or PD1 inhibitors in particular. Uh, these multiple agents that have been approved in the metastatic disease space, I think we're we're going to see them move way up. In, in the timeline for the management of these patients. And so we don't yet know where it's going to shake out, but I, with, I would speculate, I would say that we're within the not-too-distant future where we will be offering these to um, off of clinical trials to patients in the adjuvant setting and then potentially in the neoadjuvant setting. Again, there, um, we're going to get some data over time on neoadjuvant studies of these agents, and we'll see how it shakes out compared to current standard of care chemotherapy. And there's a real good chance that, that it could augment what we're already doing and improve outcomes. Now, I mean, that's around cystectomy. I think you could, you know, if you look at the opportunity around bladder preservation, it's a whole other opportunity. Um, there's a lot of great data and a number of malignancies that these agents can help in, in, improve 
um, response to radiation and take advantage of some of the you know, key cellular responses to radiation. And so we'll see how, how it shakes out in, um, in that treatment space too. All right. Terrific. So All here's right. the, uh, oh, go ahead. yeah. Go ahead. So just to wrap oh, up my, on my end, this is the algorithm that we've had up here and we don't need to go through this in detail, but this, if you need a good summary slide that sticks somewhere, this is it. It's in the guidelines and it just walks through the recommend, recommendations and one piece of paper from staging workup. Um, decision tree around cystectomy versus um, versus biopreservation, and then subsequent surveillance. And again, I think this is a, a great single sheet of paper reference that could be stuck in any clinic somewhere to help refresh refresh your memory about the guidelines. So that's all I got. I'll turn it back over to you, Robin. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for all the questions throughout. All right, Todd. Thank you so much. That was that was terrific. So um, if we can go to the next slide here. Please join us for our complimentary AUA Bladder Cancer Educational Series on Thursday, July 20th, or Tuesday, July 25th, for the next uh, of the webinars. And this is titled Complex Cases in Bladder Cancer. Dr. Angie Smith is going to be the uh, uh, host. And uh, you can visit auanet.org slash bladder cancer or BCA series to register. The first two webinars in the AUA Bladder Cancer Educational Series are now available as complimentary webcast or podcast. So if you were unable to join us for these webinars in April and May, please check those out at auanet.org slash BCA series to access them. Thank you and, every, and have a good night, everyone.